it may come as a surprise to some of us that Mark's gospel that we're spending this season in was often overlooked by the church. It was one of two gospels not written by an apostle. It was written, tradition holds, by John Mark, who was a traveling companion of Peter and Paul, cousin of Barnabas in the book of Acts. And so as one of two gospels not written by an apostle, it was perhaps already less likely to be afforded attention, especially in the early centuries when the church regarded it as maybe nothing more than a summary of Matthew's gospel. A summary, we might add, that seems to be missing a lot of key details. No genealogy, no stories about Jesus' birth at all, no beatitudes, no Lord's Prayer, and quite an abrupt ending. Then to add to that, considerations that you and I might be unaware of because we're reading it in translation. But Mark's gospel is rough grammatically. Its syntax is simple at best and just utterly confusing at worst. Perhaps it's no wonder then that it took over 300 years from the time of its writing for a commentary to first be published on Mark, first by Victor of Antioch. But in recent years, in recent years, Mark's gospel has been given a lot more attention. And some of the people in our congregation who are connected with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at various campuses are likely already deeply acquainted with this text. And they are perhaps the most surprised among us to hear that this gospel was considered the least of all the gospels for such a long time. Mark's gospel is now regarded not as a simple summary of Matthew's gospel. In fact, it is now seen as the first gospel account to have been written, having been penned by 70 AD at the very latest, and likely forming some of the source material from which Matthew would later draw. If Mark is the first gospel, then it provides for us all a very unique window into the life and the ministry of Jesus. And this was ultimately Mark's goal, to explain the life and claims of Jesus to a Roman audience, to a non-Jewish audience, who would have understood his crucifixion as a matter of great shame, who would have regarded his ministry as a failure. Mark is writing in the style of ancient biography, and ancient biography is not so much concerned with the chronological order of events as it is with the import of those same events. Ancient biography seeks to articulate the very things that provide a clearest depiction of who the person that is being written about actually was. Who are they? Help us understand that. That is the point of this genre. And this may also be the reason why Mark focuses far more on Jesus' actions than his words as other gospel writers do. And this itself is very strange because the most ancient traditions would normally be Jesus sayings traditions, quotes that people remember Jesus saying. And Mark's gospel, the earliest gospel, is less concerned with the sayings of Jesus as so many of the others are. And so it is that we will listen to Mark tell us about who Jesus really is through until Easter, following the whole story of Jesus' life and ministry from the earliest recorded telling, and receiving from Mark, we pray, a clearer picture of who this Jesus is, 
why Jesus' life and ministry matters for us and for our world. Now, it's not possible. It's just not possible for us to preach on every event that Mark records for us in these next few months. It may be the shortest gospel, but I fear it is not that short. And so we're also inviting all of you to read along. Read along with us. Most weeks it will just be a chapter in that week of the Gospel of Mark. And we'd love to know that you are reading along with us. And so you can sign up to join the Mark Challenge on our website, knoxtronhoorg slash mark. And in that, in that email you'll get every week with the reading, there will also be an opportunity to engage with the topic as a church, to share your thoughts and questions anonymously with the rest of our community. Some of those questions may be used to inform the sermon the coming week, may be answered in a video we'll put online at the end of each week. So come along with us. Um, We'll have little episodes every week in our preaching, but we want you to get the full experience of this gospel with us. Last Sunday, the Reverend Deb Stanbury gave us sort of a soft launch into this series, where she unpacked the humility of Jesus at the waters of the Jordan as he was baptized by John, and the affirmation which God gives to him, the affirmation of belovedness which is offered to all people in Jesus. This week will linger in Mark 1 a little bit, but now looking towards the end of the chapter and the passages which Jimmy read for us earlier. So if you want to follow along at home, you can pull out your Bible. If you're here, you can pull out your devices, and we'll be sort of walking through leisurely from Mark 1, verse 29. Now remember what I said when I said Mark is far more interested in showing us what Jesus is about rather than just telling us what Jesus said? Here, these passages are a case in point. In Luke's gospel, as we heard in the children's moment, Jesus pronounces the purpose of his ministry at the very beginning. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to preach liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's an impressive mission statement, and good for us to know how Jesus understood his ministry But this is not how Mark introduces Jesus' ministry. No, Mark introduces Jesus' ministry by having him go and teach in the synagogue, then having him hurry home from there to Peter's house, where Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and he heals her. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said he was going to do. He shows us what Jesus did. We are a church that's following Jesus and loving the city and serving the world. And we say that every week. And that's all well and good. But our neighbors, they probably don't care that we say that's who we are. They need to see that that's who we are. More than just saying we love the city, we need to commit ourselves to the city because of our love for it. We need to make Harvard Village and the University of Toronto better places because of our love for them. Words have lost a lot of value in our culture. They're cheap and easy, and unfortunately, in the case of the church, our words have often been betrayed by our actions. So there's a lesson for us already in Mark's gospel in just the way he presents the story. 
about the importance of actions that reveal who we really are. And far more importantly than that, the importance of actions who reveal who Jesus really is in us and for us. So Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And there are a couple of things that we should note about that healing. First, Peter has a mother-in-law. How many of us remember that when we read these stories? Peter had a mother-in-law, so he had a wife. He had a family. And Jesus called him to leave everything aside and follow him. This little episode provides for us just a small glimpse of the cost which Peter paid to follow Jesus. But it also assures us of the goodness of that decision. Because Peter chose to follow Jesus, it was Peter's home which Jesus returns to after the synagogue that day. And it was Peter's mother-in-law who Jesus first heals. In short, because of Peter's decision, salvation has come to his house as well. Now, the second thing that I think we should really pay attention to in this healing is the healed woman's response. She serves them. You heard she waits on them. Literally, she ministers to them. It's the same word even as the angels ministered to Jesus as he was in the wilderness earlier in the chapter. There's all kinds of truth that you'll hear lots about in the church, about the cultural expectations of women in the day, the general expectation of hospitality in another person's home. And I'm sure that all of these things were playing a factor in her decision to serve them. But far more important than these things is the reality, the truth, that as Jesus ministers to us, our good and proper response is to answer with ministry to him. This mutual self-giving of one for the no- another is the very heart of God. As the Father, Son, and Spirit give to one another, serve one another, and respond to service with more service. And so God reaches out to us, offers us his ministry, his service, and invites us into that still same dance that we should respond with ministry as well. Now, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath, immediately after the synagogue. And on this occasion, no fuss is made about that. Rather, a mob forms not to stone Jesus, but to bring to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Now, Mark is careful to note that these people come after sundown. They come after the Sabbath has concluded. Perhaps they've waited the remaining hours of the day, waited to be free to receive healing themselves. Mark shows us how the ceremonial law is constraining people from receiving what they need. They waited until that moment to seek healing for themselves, to seek healing for their loved ones. The whole town has come to the door, the text says. Jesus has come to a world very much in need of healing. Jesus continues to come to a world in need of healing. Whole cities and towns continue to cry out for healing, certainly in these years, but also in every year. More than COVID-19, illness of every sort plagues us. Flus and depression, cancer and HIV, anxiety and heart disease. We're all in need of healing. 
all of us would be a part of this crowd too. Jesus longs to minister to us as well. He heals those who've gathered at the door, and he casts out many demons. And just a quick aside, that these are two different actions, healing and casting out demons. Mark is clear that these are two different things, and I think we're sometimes tempted to say, oh, demons in the ancient world were just illnesses they didn't recognize yet. But Mark differentiates between illnesses and demons, and Jesus does both. And then very early in the morning, Jesus goes off to a solitary place to pray. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is seen to pray only three times. And as you read along with us, you should pay attention to what else happens in threes. He is always seen to pray at night, always alone. On one occasion, there are others nearby, but Jesus is alone. And they come at key moments in his ministry. Here, his ministry is only beginning, and Simon leads the search to interrupt him, exclaiming, everyone is looking for you. How relatable is that? I can only imagine, especially for parents, you finally find a quiet moment. You're thinking perhaps you should pray, and you're interrupted with a dramatic claim. We need you. Everyone is looking for you. The other thing is more important than whatever you're doing right now. I know I can feel that way sometimes. That prayer is a luxury when everything else is squared away and not actually a prerequisite for being able to live my life the way that God has called me to. I think we all know that interruption. For Jesus, it's Simon Peter. For some, it's our children or our family. For others, it's our work or school. For still others, it's chores or a good nap. But don't believe that lie that everyone looking for you means that you shouldn't be praying, that people needing you negates your need for time in prayer. Jesus hears this claim of Peter that everyone is looking for him, and he says it's time to go somewhere else. He's not going back to the people who are looking for him. He's going to nearby villages so he can preach there also. This is why he has come. Jesus responds to interruption by reorienting towards his mission, his purpose, why he's actually there, what God has actually called him to do. Prayer is the thing which orients Jesus towards God's will and which allows him to reorient others as well. And there it is. All of these verses in, and Jesus finally says what he has come to do. He announces why he has come after we've already seen him doing these things. He came to preach, to preach that the time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. And good news like that, it always means something for today. So Jesus heals as well. Jesus' healing ministry was a witness. It was meant to testify to the truth of his preaching ministry, a witness to the good news that the kingdom of God had come near. Because words like that, they change everything. And if that was true, then of course demons should be cast out because they have no place in the kingdom. And if it's true that the kingdom has come near, then of course illnesses should be healed because there is no sickness in the new creation. The truth of Jesus' ministry and mission is the truth of the church's ministry and mission as well. 
we have been charged by our Lord first and foremost to go and make disciples, to teach everything which Jesus has commanded. And while we do this, we cannot neglect ministry to the poor, the marginalized, the sick, and the hurting, because in ministering to such as these, in ministering to such as our very selves, we are revealing the very kingdom of which we preach every Sunday, which we study every week in our home churches, and which we pray for morning and evening alike. Jesus' ministry of healing is supportive of his ministry of proclaiming God's good news. But people are responding to one far better than the other. Mark doesn't say that anybody came near to Jesus because they heard him say the kingdom of God is nearby. Rather, they came because they heard of his miracles. And in his grace, Jesus meets people in that place. But he doesn't allow himself to become entirely consumed by something which is meant to aid his mission, not become his mission. Then, after preaching in synagogues and driving out demons throughout Galilee, a man with leprosy comes to Jesus. And this man begs on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice that the passage which follows is about being made clean. It's not about healing. Other diseases are healed in the Bible. But when it comes to leprosy, consistently, even in the Old Testament, it is is about being cleansed. Other diseases are healed. Leprosy is cleansed. Leprosy, which at this time could have been any number of skin diseases, not only what we today call leprosy, it was a terrible burden on those who had it and a terrible burden on those communities which surrounded them. And the law required that one who had leprosy lived outside of the town, were kept separate from others by a screen if they were even allowed in the synagogue at all, and no one was to touch a leper or else they would be unclean themselves. This leper doesn't ask ask to be healed. He asks to be made clean. Healing is almost incidental to the thing that he needs the most. Community, inclusion, belonging. In the past, if I were to preach on this passage, we might have had trouble imagining the leper's reality. Trouble imagining such harsh humiliation about a disease. But suddenly this reality seems very familiar because of COVID. This virus has put incredible burden not only on those who have suffered at its hands, but on our whole world. Isolation has been required not only from those who have the disease, but from any who have come into close contact with them. And the stigma... Oh, the stigma. How many people have been hesitant to share with our church family that they've had COVID in recent weeks? We have pretended for two years as if simple actions of personal responsibility would keep the virus at bay, would be sure to protect us. And it's a lie. These actions are good and important. They help, but they cannot be sure to save us. The virus doesn't really care that you didn't see your family at Christmas, doesn't really care that you only left your house to go grocery shopping. It's a virus, not a moral judge. Like lepers, people have internalized shame about diagnoses, 
sought ritual cleanliness in the eyes of the law and been kept from receiving the small pieces of community which remain available to them, like prayer, like care packages, like friends who know what you're going through and family who's there for you. These things have become an incredible burden because we have allowed something like a positive test result to alienate people from community, to make them hide what they're going through. Because we've believed the lie that if we just did better, we wouldn't have gotten sick. Like the leper, we long for healing and deliverance. We all long for an end to this pandemic, sure because of health, but also because the thing we long for most of all is that we can be brought back into community again. Jesus meets the need of the man with leprosy. He is moved with compassion. He touches the man, confirms that he is willing, makes the man clean. Jesus touches one who is unclean and is not made unclean himself. The law of love supersedes the ceremonial law when the two are in conflict. And the law of love demanded that this man be affirmed in his humanity, shown compassion, be offered the basic need of touch, even as the ceremonial law would have forbidden such a thing. Jesus meets the need of all his children still today. Isolated from community, made to feel unclean because of illness, rather than affirmed of their worth and humanity, Jesus draws near to you who've known disease yourself and to you who have illness in your household, to you who've done everything right and tested positive, to you who've done the best you can but fear you may have transmitted the virus to another, and to you who are just so tired of isolation and restrictions and loneliness. Jesus ministers to us all, wills that we would be clean, welcomes us into community in him. What we see in this first chapter of Mark is Jesus' actions with purpose proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom and ushering it in at every opportunity he has. He confronts the way that the laws meant to reveal the kingdom have actually stymied it, have hampered people from receiving wholeness, have kept people away from community, have made God more legalistic judge than loving father. As we continue through Mark's gospel, we'll be witnesses to Jesus proclaiming and ushering in that kingdom of love and kingdom of belonging, confronting the ways that bad religion has hidden God away and offering healing and wholeness in its place. May we ourselves be as Jesus is in Mark's accounting of his gospel, quick to show what we would otherwise just say eager to love those who God has given to us and deeply desirous that all should be welcomed into the community of belovedness, the very reality of God's coming kingdom. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We have a couple of reflection questions to leave you with in this time. The first is, what actions are available to you to show your love to your neighbors? and the truth of God's coming kingdom in your life. 
how can you take the words which we say and believe and make them practical and believable for others around you? And the second question is, in what places do you have a deep need for healing? You can take a little bit of time now and I hope more time later to pray that Jesus would come to you and minister to you. And I want to challenge you to think as well about how the church can be Jesus' hands and feet to you at this time. Because whatever it is, whatever needs healing, need not isolate us from community. Jesus has come to welcome us in, to bring wholeness again. And so we'll leave some time for you to pray about these things, think about these things now. And if you want more prayer about this after the service, I would be very happy to meet with you, to pray with you, so with Natasha. So take some time now. Um, If you're online, you can email us and we can set up a prayer time as well. Um, Yeah, consider how God is desiring to heal you and help you reveal his kingdom today.